Welcome to Caregiver SOS On Air, presented by the WellMed Charitable Foundation with nationally known gerontologist Carol Zernio and veteran broadcaster and attorney Ron Aaron. This program provides health, wellness, and other information for caregivers who are vital to the health and well-being of so many people across our country. Now, here are your hosts, Ron Aaron and Carol Zernio. Well, thank you so much for joining us today on Caregiver SOS On Air. I'm Ron Aaron, along with our co-host, Carol Zerniel. Carol is executive director of the uh, Charitable Foundation for the uh, WellMed medical management team. And in that capacity, uh, she has put together some incredible programs. We haven't talked about them in a while, but when you take a look at how COVID-19 impacted uh, folks here and across the country, and you think about the ways in which the Charitable Foundation was able to provide help for people it is absolutely amazing. And uh, Carol Zerniel, uh, you think about the meals that you all delivered to folks in need. Uh, you think about people who without what you did, uh, I don't know what they would have done. Well, we're very fortunate that we've been able to provide uh, meals, groceries uh, for many, many families uh, of older persons. Uh, and we're still doing it. Uh, the need, you know, it comes and goes. I, I, when COVID rises, so does the the need for groceries. And I, and I, as we're looking uh, ahead, I think now um, with the winter storm that we had in Texas uh, and the heat coming from the summer, I think utility assistance is going to be our next big concern because they're going to start cutting people off. As uh, some of the utility companies are going to resume cutting people off when they can't pay their bills. Yeah, they made that announcement uh, uh, in this area this week, and it's true across the country. Uh, where there are a lot of folks who were accruing huge utility bills not being paid month after month after month. I don't know what those people will do. I don't know, but it's a little bit scary. But, you know, COVID has has brought some changes uh, in in caregiving, you know, just as well as as regular life. And and that's why I'm so pleased that we have uh, Mike Splain with us, who's been a, um, a guest on the show in the past, and, you know, an expert in so many different facets of caregiving, uh, but to well, talk a little bit about caregiving in COVID. Mike is the owner and principal of Splain Consulting, a small advocacy and government affairs firm based in Washington, D.C. Immediately prior to starting his company, Mike was director of state government affairs in the public policy division of the U.S. Alzheimer's Association. He led its grassroots network to accomplish state policy priorities, including comprehensive state Alzheimer plans. And Mike Splain, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Yeah, (laughs) caregiving, like many other things, um, lots of changes in the COVID era, some of which will persist, some of which won't. Um, I think, you know, everybody on one level or another, whether they want to acknowledge it or not, has experienced some aspect of isolation whether it's a two-person island like my wife and myself, unable to see our kids and grandkids and essentially staying sequestered for uh, following all the recommendations or a large family, or uh, even as importantly, uh, elders who live alone. Uh, This is a population that I know Carol cares about deeply, done some work on, and we've just learned an awful lot more about the effects of isolation, whether it's Uh, helping people meet basic human needs, as you suggested in the opener, or 
helping find creative ways that people can meet their emotional and psychological needs. But uh, we've we've learned way too much about isolation in the last year. Um, and so much so, I'll just say one personal thing. We went for our first uh, vaccination recently, thankfully. I'm very thankful. And we went to a football stadium, a, an NFL stadium for our shot that is literally the most people I have been in the presence of in over a year. And I thought I need, I might've needed anti-anxiety medication. It was that freaky to be with, you know, a couple thousand people, six feet apart. So at any rate. Right. And that's, I was going to ask you that if you were feeling nervous, because even, even in small groups, like I, you know, I'm in the office today and sometimes you know, I'll be glad when I stop. I, I don't feel the fear around other people, whether it's a small group in a large group in a football stadium would freak me out. Yeah, it was it was it was mass vaccination at its best, though. I mean, it was public health in the, the purest sense of the word. Uh, we left there with our second appointment. Uh, the other feeling I had, of course, was a feeling of very intense jealousy uh, of the printing company that has the contract for all those circles six feet apart that they had put on the cement floor of the stadium i i i uh, and i don't want to be the guy that's going to have to scrape them off before the football team comes back um but you know on a serious note um you know states are uh, i did state policy for a long time and so I, I still follow it uh it's just a force of habit as well as the needs of our clients and it's interesting that states are not as broke as we thought they would be one of the reasons states are not as broke as we thought they would be at this point is because they're spending much, much less on all forms of long-term care services and supports, whether those are delivered in the community or, or if they're delivered in a care community. I mean, we've got states that are spending up, upwards of 20% less on long-term care than they, than they were projected to spend. What does that mean in terms of who are those persons that might have needed that support? Are they part of the persons who have died? Have families figured out other ways to support those people? Are they completely unknown to social care or social service organizations because they do live alone and are isolated and they're living uh, very, very difficult lives, marginalized lives? There's just a lot of unknown there. Uh, or did people uh, people figure out somehow to, to do without? I mean, there's just a lot of stories that we need to think about, but that just that that number just strikes me that uh, something very important has happened. Hold that thought. I want to remind folks who just joined us: you're listening to Caregiver SOS on air. I'm Ron Aaron, along with our co-host Carol Zerniel, talking with Mike Splain, and we're talking about caregiver choices, lessons learned from COVID-19. Mike has spent a lot of years in the public policy field, time with the U.S. Alzheimer's Association, and now with his own company, Splain Consulting. Uh, you mentioned the numbers of people who are not getting state help and long-term care. My initial assumption was because they died. That's part of the story. I think you also have seen a, a general downturn, uh, again, aided in many cases by policy, of the number of people that go for medical care, urgent, even urgent medical care, to hospital. And we know, and particularly those of us that work in the Alzheimer's community, know that a hospitalization of a person with Alzheimer's disease is almost certainly without an awful lot of planning and advocacy and just darn good luck. It's almost always a one-way ticket to 
nursing home, yeah. at least for rehab. So you don't have as many people going into hospitals. You also have Medicare allowing hospital at home uh, where they are paying healthcare providers to deliver what they say is acute care level of services as if somebody was in an acute care bed. Uh, that may be part of the story as well. They were either preventing hospitalizations or being more thoughtful about hospitalizations or, um, or folks are just choosing because of fear not to take everything to the hospital. Well, you, you know, you talked about hospital to home. And one of the things with, the, with COVID is I've been looking for are, you know, what are the opportunities that it's created? So, and some of that is increased access from home for some of the services we might not have been able to get. Texas was terribly far behind with telehealth, even in the rural areas. Uh, and that's something now everybody has experienced and not that we want it all that that's the only form of medical care we want, but it sort of cleared that path for us. It has. And, uh, and, 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 and yet not every medical condition lends itself to telehealth. I, I won't tell a terrible story about my telehealth visit with my cardiologist in which the disclaimer that he read from the medical center at which he works was longer than the visit, but uh, but what can you do? I mean, you can't listen to my heart <laughs> the same way you could in person. Nonetheless, it was, you know, it was dialogue. It was instructive. But, uh, yeah, I think telehealth uh, is on the upswing for better or for worse. But, you know, there is a digital divide. It's real. And even when people have the gear, they don't necessarily have the know-how on how to use it. One of our projects right now, we're consulting on ways to improve the diversity and uh, the diversity in clinical trials. And we started with community advisory boards that had to migrate to online. And one of the things we had to do is not only provide gear, but we had to provide some form of instruction to folks that were part of our community advisory board, because it wasn't just a matter of saying, hey, I'll send you a, a laptop and a Zoom link and you're ready to go. It's just not, it's just not that easy. And right. some of those neighborhoods... Uh, lack the kind of Wi-Fi connection that you would need for Zoom. Yeah, no, I think the lack of Wi-Fi, mean, that's another very important structural issue that uh, I think, again, it's a lesson from COVID that, um, that, that this is an area where we could do much more work. And there are programs. The interesting thing is every time we pay a, a, a bill for our phone service, Yes, I'm a dinosaur. I actually have a hardline phone. Uh, we pay taxes that create a uh, fund called Lifeline that is uh, slowly but surely those funds are being accessed by people that need it to pay for hotspots or pay for their internet connections. But it's slow progress. Well, and I think you point out some of the dinosaur ways are still good ways. Um, we're running a mass vaccination clinics in some of our senior centers that have been closed. And the way to register is through the phone. We don't do online registry. And it was on purpose to level the playing field for older persons. They couldn't compete with the you know, 9,000 vaccinations sell out in six minutes. Uh, oh, but no, a phone, no. they're competing evenly. And they have a phone as a general rule with everybody else. Well, and don't forget that we we all blew up the post office, the good old U.S. Postal Service, by providing it 85 or 90 percent more volume than they'd ever experienced when we all rediscovered it for Christmas and holiday mailing back in December. Absolutely. <laughs> old tech, sometimes not a bad thing. So, Mike, I have this image of a black rotary dial phone sitting on your kitchen table. 
Not quite that much of a dinosaur, but close. <laughs> and I do dial a phone. <laughs> All right. Stay with us a minute. I'm Ron, along with our co-host, Carol Zerniel, talking with Mike Splain about caregiver choices and lessons learned from COVID-19. You're listening to Caregiver SOS on air. The WellMed Charitable Foundation would like to remind you it is important to stay connected while social distancing. Caregiver stress may be higher now, and specialists are available to talk with. There's no question that we are living in not normal times, but whether the new normal will be the old normal is yet to be seen. So if you are troubled, if you are feeling stressed, ask for help. Services are provided at no cost. See more at caregiversos.org. Hello. We appreciate you listening to Caregiver SOS on air. I'm Ron Aaron, along with our co-host, Carol Zerniel. We're talking with Mike Splain. He is principal in Splain Consulting and was director of state government affairs in the public policy division of the U.S. Alzheimer's Association and still spends time looking at public policy issues. So, Mike, I want to go back to where we began. Uh, lessons learned from COVID-19. What would those lessons be? Oh boy, you you can teach a new dog, an old dog new tricks. Um, I, I think we've uh, as a if you think about aging services in general, education, and um, and even some things like groceries. I mean, we have learned and we have mastered some new ways of delivery. I think the needs are the same, the wants are the same, but we have found through trial and error and tested. Um, really significant game-changing methods of delivery while understanding those don't all work for some people. Um, There's still something about, you know, a hug at the end of a support group that uh, no Zoom is ever going to reproduce. Um, So I think that's, so it's, it's not the need or it's not the want, it's how that gets met has been through a lot of innovation. I think we have a new appreciation for, or we could, and I'm speaking to Texans and I apologize, I'm not just singling you out, but I think we're having a new appreciation for the personal side of emer- emergency preparedness that in fact, um, one of my one of my cousins is a saint, a member of the LDS church, and um, they have tenets about both personal and communal preparation for disasters. And we could learn a lot about that, uh, that, that there's a personal aspect to emergency preparedness that we should all take into consideration. Uh, how many of us were caught short? You know, I live in the very urban mid-Atlantic. How many of us were caught short on groceries when all the rules changed about whether or not or when or the conditions under which we should just go up to the grocery store. How many of us, by the way, learned how to cook with what we had as opposed to running out for that lemon? You know, I mean, just things that new habits, new habits. How many people quit smoking? I have a bet with some of my wonderful public health friends that the pandemic actually created uh, a measurable number of people that gave up the butts. Yay. But anyway, I think well, these no, are a number this, of things Is this to think because about. people couldn't get to the store? They to couldn't get, get to the store. They couldn't get to the store. They were, they were stuck at home. Uh, <laughs> they were stuck at home with a partner that said, you know, I, I hate 
I hate it when you smoke and well, finally they made up the mind to do it. Uh, I think there's, I think there will be, I think you will see a measurable number of people also for their health. Uh, you know, when you talk about a respiratory disease, which is what we were calling COVID in the beginning, we were talking about it, not so much as a immunosuppressant or immunosuppressant disease, but as a respiratory virus, um, I think that might have gotten some people's attention as well on the smoking side. That and pregnancies. Well, we'll see what happens with that. I I lived through the, in New England, we had in 1978, the winter of 1978, I lived in Rhode Island. We had a five and a half feet of snow in 20 hours in little Rhode Island. And uh, yeah, nine months later, baby boomlet, no question. Because everything was closed for a week. When New York City had their blackout, they had a similar phenomenon. Yeah. I will have to check. Well, um, talk a little bit about what, you know, I, I, when you see who has died of COVID um, and, you know, where, where the impact has been, what do you think, you know, have, have we learned anything about ageism? Have we learned anything about the way we treat older persons in this country? I think we learned a lot of lessons. I think first and foremost, I think we did learn that we are ageist. There's a wonderful Broadway play uh, that that uh, has a song <laughs> that should should sound like everybody's a little bit ageist inside. Uh, I mean, I think even people who work in aging, like uh, myself with my white hair, make jokes about ourselves and our, our our age and our supposed decrepitude. So I think I think we are, and we have to come to grips with that. I also think that um, there were care communities in which the duty of care was abandoned by staff and uh, staff and ownership, but those are few and far between. I I think what I, the picture I saw is uh, we were battling ignorance about the disease as much as anything else in January, February, March of last year, and then mixed messages because we were experiencing and we all experienced a year of mixed messages about what the do's and don'ts were. So I think that contributed to it. Last thing I would say, I I know there's a picture out there that at the emergency room level or in the, in the hospital wards, there were these painful decisions between the 80 year old with dementia and the 18 year old Olympic swimmer and who should get the, who should get the ventilator. And, and I'm not sure it was that, was the equation so much as we've done an awful lot in the last five years in this country to get Medicare beneficiaries to not only have advanced care directives, but to have them on file in their electronic health records. And as I talk to emergency room personnel, part of the story of those desperate situations in hospitals was, in fact, people's rights were honored because they had an advanced directive on file that said, as painful as this is to hear, they had an advanced directive on file that said no extraordinary measures. And what you didn't have, and I've talked to dozens of emergency room physicians, is they didn't have the family crashing into that emergency situation saying, hey, dad really didn't mean it when he signed that. So I think it's a complex story. And I think there's a lot of stories. There's, there, is, there was neglect. There was abandonment of care. There was a, a, a very sharp and painful learning curve about the do's and don'ts. Um, but there are also, uh, I think, rights in some cases uh, were not abridged in that 
persons who had made advanced wishes known had those wishes followed. That's a really good point. I have an advanced directive, and I would have been the guy on the gurney without the ventilator if they had access to my advanced directive. Hadn't thought about it. It'd be an interesting story. Well, uh, we've, we, yeah, there's a couple of a couple of collectives that actually are gathering, you know, making more and more data available about persons who died from COVID, and um, I, we're trying to see whether or not we can actually test that hypothesis. But no question that um, there was there was lifeboating. There was people saying this life is more more worthy than another life and and stuck making very, very painful decisions. Well, they were Solomon-like decisions. Well, do you think you mentioned mixed messages and we're right in the middle of the vaccination process where we're still kind of living in the, yes, we want to be vaccinated. No, we don't want to be vaccinated. Don't anything to do with it. Do you think that people will move a little bit towards getting vaccinated or do you think it's going to be a hard line where people are now um, that's where they're going to stay. I I don't know. I think uh, <laughs> yes. I think there. I think there will be there will be some folks that will put up a hard line, but I also see some terrific things happening with vaccinations. Done a lot of work in the last three years with American Indians uh, and Alaska Natives about dementia. In fact, I'm an author of a major public health document on that subject, and seen some incredible things the Cherokee when they got their first the eastern Cherokee when they got their first round of vaccinations uh, made a decision as a community who could who should get it first and they vaccinated all the native Cherokee speakers as did many other tribes to kind of as a way to preserve the culture and preserve the people that were the the elders capital E elders and the preservers of the culture Uh, I think that's a that's a it's a wonderful anti-ageist message, yeah, that's uh, a lovely and, and story. it's it's a, it's a good story. I, I like a good story, but I think that that's those kind of things are are exemplars as well. So, but but look, we we turn this into a um, we turn this into a uh, something political as opposed to public health, and as my Southern friends say, public health is the health of all y'all and all y'all is uh, sometimes uh, needs a little, needs a little prodding. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. All y'all doesn't roll off your tongue quite as easily as it does for some of us. Yeah. (laughs) I'm a Yankee. I know it. (laughs) Cause like when I hear myself say that you say it and I'm like, I say that all y'all. Well, um, so what, you know, we've, we've got just a couple minutes left, but, you know, what, uh, looking ahead, if you could wave your magic wand, what's your hope as we move beyond COVID? Um, uh, I think the, I think attention to social isolation as a, as our society ages is, should, I would like it to get red hot as a cause, as an area for professional conversations at conferences, as part of planning for, um, aging services going forward. We're advising all of our clients to add one of the simple validated loneliness tools to their assessments because we think that this is a important social determinant of health. And I will bet you uh, our next our next opportunity to have a meal together, Carol, because as I said in the opener, we this, you literally you were the last person I had a public meal with uh, before the lockdown started. I'll bet you that uh, we'll have 25% of people over the age of 70 in this country when we get the 2020 census, 25% of people over 70 
live in a single person household. One in nine over 65 has Alzheimer's or a closely related disorder. Do the math. My, my thought is that that demographic plus what we've learned in a year of COVID will create some momentum around social isolation and dealing with the root causes, but also supporting people that do live alone because it's how we live. Right. Yes. We're all of our independence and we've, we've chosen to live at home. And I think some of us discovered that, you know, pulling yourself by your bootstraps and making it on your own is really, really lonely during a pandemic. And very tough. Well, very thank tough. You. yeah, I, I hope you're right. I think that, um, you know, we, we talked about social isolation as something abstract before COVID and it became real for just about everyone. Yep. Well, I really want to thank you for coming on. If folks want to learn more about what you're doing, can they find you on the internet? Unfortunately, yes. Uh, I, if I, <laughs> I am a very private person, I <laughs> would never be on the internet if I wasn't in business. Uh, Splain Consulting, you can also find us on Facebook, Living Alone and Connected, uh, which is a, a website and a group for people living alone with dementia to provide them information and emotional support. Um, and you can yeah, put my name Perfect. in, Mike Splain, and unfortunately, you'll find me. Mike Splain, thank you. Appreciate you joining us on Caregiver SOS On Air. On behalf of Carol Zerniel, I'm Ron Aaron. We'll talk with you again soon right here on Caregiver SOS On Air. You've been listening to Caregiver SOS On Air, an exclusive presentation of the WellMed Charitable Foundation. We welcome emails with suggestions and comments on this program at radio at wellmed.net. Join co-hosts Carol Zerniel and Ron Aaron next week for more on caregiving, improving the health and well-being of caregivers and their care recipients everywhere. For more on caregiving and podcasts of our programs, visit caregiversos.org.